This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss improving access to and the use of evidence-based medicine. With me to discuss the topic is Dr. Todd Feynman, Chief Medical Officer and co-founder of the California-based healthcare data firm, Dr. Evidence. Dr. Feynman, welcome to the program. Hi, David. Good to be here. Dr. Feynman's bio is posted on the podcast website. On background, a 2013 study appearing in the British Medical Journal's Clinical Evidence website reached the somewhat striking conclusion that based on randomized controlled trials, only 33% of 3,000 medical treatments were found to be beneficial or likely beneficial, and approximately half were of unknown effectiveness. A related study published by the IOM, or Institute of Medicine in 2012, titled Best Care and Lower Cost, found that $765 billion, or a quarter of healthcare spending in 2009, was wasted or unnecessary in making us healthier. These studies beg the question, with U.S. healthcare spending now exceeding $3 trillion annually and accounting for one-sixth of our economy, how do we limit spending to treatments that are proven effective, or how do we increase the use of evidence-based medicine, or how do we, to borrow a phrase from ABIM's foundation, choose wisely? Not surprisingly, the 2012 IOM report recommended increasing comparative effectiveness research and increase the use of digital clinical practice guidelines. With me to discuss the problem of reducing low or no value care or reciprocally improve the collection, dissemination, and use of evidence-based medicine is again Dr. Todd Feynman. So with that as background, Todd, I found your bio interesting and instructive here. That is your experience as a hospitalist, which led to your interest in this subject. So maybe by way of introduction, if you can explain to us how uh, you evolved from that work into your current activity. Sure. So I was once, many years ago, about 10, 11 years ago, I was working as a full-time hospitalist and managing a bunch of regional hospital programs and working as a medical director for a large physician group doing utilization and quality management. And in that position, you know, I was pretty much responsible trying to figure out coverage decisions and trying to make sure the doctors were ordering the right tests and treatments. And I was kind of being forced to use a lot of guidelines and practice management protocols and, and or standards of care, review articles, things like that. And it didn't take me long to realize that there was a lot of variance in care, you know, Five patients with the exact same diagnosis were getting five different treatment recommendations. Um, for example, you know, a patient, you know, five patients with localized prostate cancer, some would get recommended, you know, brachytherapy, some would get, you know, active and recommended active surveillance or uh, prostatectomy and so forth. So, um, you know, I was very uncomfortable with, you know, the, the concept of all this variance going on with patients who seem to have the same pro medical profile diagnosis. And then digging deeper, I realized that, you know, there was um, the outcomes were affected by the, you know, the treatments, the variance in treatments that the patients were getting. 
So um, I decided to try to use evidence, you know, the the primary sources of evidence to make decisions, but it took way too much effort, too much time and resources to answer all the questions that were in front of me with evidence. And um, I decided to uh, leave full-time practice and create a company um, that would create technologies that would make it super easy for doctors, policymakers, and patients, and anyone else to use real evidence to make better decisions. Thank you. So you note uh, the time intensity of this, but uh, could you expand what else explains uh, the variation or inconsistency in treatment protocols other than uh, uh, physicians at at the time or point of care uh, don't have the ability or opportunity to actually learn what is the best or most recent evidence? Yes, so the as a, as a doctor, as a medical director, and as a patient, as a, you know, somebody who went to you know hospitals and clinics with my parents and friends, the variance of, I saw variance of care uh, affected by many factors, situations. One, you know, it ranged from you know patients' insurance status would affect you know what care they got, the time of the they were admitted to the hospital. Um, it could be impa- the variance could be impacted by which doctor they saw, doctors. Um, the treatments they were recommending could be influenced by, you know, the, the medical group they were in, the hospital they were working in, the standard of care is associated in that hospital. Defensive medicine played a role. Uh, you know, contracts that doctors would sign would influence their care sometimes. Like if it was PPO versus HMO, capitation versus no capitation, pay for performance, stuff like that. So there was all these variables, factors that were influencing what doctors were doing and ordering. Okay, thank you. So let's go uh, directly to your current work and the firm Doctor Evidence. Generally, let me ask, what are you trying to accomplish? Well, the mission of the company is to create a, a software program, a technology that would enable, like I said before, anyone, including patients, doctors, policymakers, industry, medical societies, Um, to use real evidence from either published studies or real-world evidence to make better decisions. Okay, so how does that happen? How did the company get started? How do you you make uh, the evidence available such that uh, there's demand for its use, it accommodates time limitations, etc.? So the, the biggest obstacles to using evidence include the following. One is, you know, one is framing the question or, you know, creating a question, what we call a PICO format, you know, coming up with the right query. And so we have tools and and processes that enable or teach others to frame the question properly and ask for the evidence properly. And then once you've framed your question, you've got your, you know, basically the inclusion exclusion criteria properly articulated. Then we have, um, a technology, a hybrid of, you know, man, man and machine that goes and finds the studies that answer that question, answer, you know, meet the inclusion exclusion criteria, goes into PubMed, Medline, Embase, and other databases, and finds the relevant studies, and then a combination of software and librarian work um, screen and, and pick out the most relevant studies. Then we have a digital technology platform that enables trained um, methodologists to use our software to extract the relevant data from those relevant studies and put it into a digital live platform 
that then enables the user, with some training, of course, to basically do any type of analysis. Um, they can look at the individual studies that are now in a user-friendly format. They're no, the data is no longer in those, you know, complex, full-text articles that, you know, most people don't understand or hard to read. Now they're in a, you know, user-friendly uh, study summary that's digital. And then you can, you know, pool the data any which way you want. You could go in there and say, I just want to pool the RCTs. I want to just pool studies that have at least a thousand participants. I want to pool only the studies that have at least a follow-up of one year. And then you basically can do any type of analysis um, based on your own personal preferences. And the machine will, you know, basically answer your query and spit out the answer, the evidence answer. So would it be fair to say your work is similar to Cochrane? Uh, they do systematic evidence reviews, but that your value-added is formatting and manipulation. Yeah, so the big difference between what Cochrane does and what we do is, I mean, we obviously imitate a lot of their methodologies, but the big difference is Cochrane is a static PDF document. Right, right. And, it, you know, it's some group of experts saying, oh, to answer this question, we believe the inclusion-exclusion Excluding criteria should be the following. But you can't change that. It's written in stone. If you don't agree with, you know, their inclusion exclusion criteria, you cannot change it. And um, and then uh, and uh, in addition, it's you know it's hard to read a you know a, a long Cochrane review. It, it's just you know it's a big long PDF document, tons of content, hard to find stuff in a digital platform. You know, it's just it's like using Consumer Reports or E-Trade or any other online platform. It's just really easy to find the evidence. It's fully transparent. Um, and again, you can change the parameters of the, of the question. So let's, let's take an example, a specific example. In reading uh, about your organization, Dr. Evidence, I saw one was working to improve or make providers aware and patients of uh, potentially adverse drug interactions. That's a pretty common problem, concern in the clinical practice setting. Uh, so that's an example. Could you point to or, or flesh out how it's being used in, uh, relative to that issue, or what would be another good example? Well, so, yeah, I mean, we can answer any question um, to the extent that there's studies on drug interactions. Um, you know, we would, you know, if they were comparing patients that were on a combination of therapies versus patients who are on a monotherapy and see, you know, and they were measuring the rate of adverse events that, you know, that we would extract the data and you'd be able to determine if there really is a, you know, a truly, an, uh, if there really is evidence confirming that a combination of therapies causes more adverse events than a monotherapy or certain combinations are more likely to cause an adverse event than other combinations. You know, again, you know, there might be somebody might say, oh, I just want to use pharmacokinetic data or, you know, other types of data. So we can answer that question if that evidence exists for that, you know, particular drug class and the interaction you're interested in. But the more common questions we get are efficacy and safety of treatment. So, you know, if somebody's trying to determine, you know, the most effective therapy for, um, you know, re for MS or rheumatoid arthritis or, or recurrent breast cancer, you know, we, we can, that, that's easy to, you know, extract data on efficacy and safety, and then you can do your analysis. We can do analysis on prevalence and incidence rates of disease. We can do analysis on, it, on you know, the, how adherent and, and compliant patients are with a medication. We can do extract data to answer questions about 
the risk factors associated with the disease, calculate the prognosis, things like that. Okay, thank you. Let's go to some of the challenges here other than, say, the availability of uh, evidence and the formatting aspect. The typical criticism you hear in this instance, I wouldn't say it's necessarily all that thoughtful, but I'm sure you're well aware you hear this criticism about this leads to cookbook medicine when, in fact, medicine or healthcare delivery in the clinical practice setting, again, is really as much of an art as a science. But what's your response to critics who uh, make this complaint uh, that this leads to cookbook medicine? Yeah, I, I mean, that cookbook medicine is the reason we started this company. Is we're, we're the antidote to that. Mm-hmm. Cookbook medicine is based on the concept that, you know, doctors are being forced to use a guideline or a practice management protocol that may be outdated, it may be may not answer their question, it has they use the wrong studies, the, you don't agree with the inclusion exclusion criteria, it's hard to read, hard to understand, not transparent. So, you know, doctors are resistant and become and are not always and often not compliant with those guidelines and cookbooks that you're talking about. So the antidote is to have a resource an evidence resource, an evidence tool that is easy to use. Um, and the doctor can basically create their own settings. They can go do their own query that matches the unique patient profile, the unique patient condition that they're dealing with at the point of care. They can put in, you know, whichever treatments they're most interested in, and they can choose which study design they want. And they basically can, based on their own instincts and training and preferences, pick their own inclusion exclusion criteria and do their own analysis, as opposed to relying on the conclusion of somebody else's analysis. Okay, thank you. The other more, I think, challenging uh, uh, concern or issue here is vested interests. Um, so I was forced to recall I was the evaluation officer years ago at the Agency of Healthcare Research and Quality. Its predecessor, AHCPR, in 1995, came out with a recommendation regarding uh, surgical procedures for lower back disorders. The recommendation was there was no evidence to support spinal fusion surgery. This led to the Congress attempting to zero budget the agency. So there are definitely vested interests involved relative to um, the evidence for or against certain treatments. Have you run up against that concern or problem? um, When you say vested interests, you mean like a conflict of interest, right? Right. Or that there there are certain, you know, industries, um, say, for example, medical devices, who would like to see, obviously, uh, their device used when maybe the evidence isn't supportive for a certain particular patient. Um, so, obviously, you run up against uh, companies who are trying to obviously sell product, whether or not uh, it's the best evidence for a particular patient. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, as a doctor, as a patient, as, as the CMO of an evidence company, yeah, I've seen it all. I've I've seen, you know, doctors who have a vested interest in, in, you know, finding and or or prioritizing data that shows the surgery that they do is the best surgical technique, right? Or, you know, drug, you know, pharmaceutical companies obviously want to, you know, get evidence out there that supports the use or the marketing and the uh, utilization of their therapies. And medical societies have vested interest in you know, sometimes in, in um, supporting, you know, recommendations that they've been giving out for years. 
so yeah, there's always a potential conflict of interest. Um, I'm not saying that that always leads to erroneous or incorrect conclusions, but it's, it, there's rarely have I seen in any guideline or any practice management protocol or any recommendation that I've seen that there isn't the potential for conflict of interest or that, or that, that, that conflict of interest could have influenced the final recommendations and which, you know, leads to, which is another reason why we created this technology, which is the antidote to conflict of interest is enabling others to change the parameters or the inclusion exclusion criteria of the, of the analysis. So if somebody does an analysis and says, you know, drug A is drug B and you don't agree with their inclusion exclusion criteria, you could change that criteria, you know, bring in different studies and see if the conclusions change. If they don't change, then, you know, the recommendations are probably valid. But if they do change and you can't replicate them, then there's probably a problem. And the recommendations may be wrong or, or, you know, need to be questioned. I hope that makes sense. No, it does. Thank you. Helpful. Let me ask, your work, uh, one of the immediate thoughts uh, I had when I read about your work is the what relatedness or the relatedness to developing quality measures. So have you been approached by, say, the quality measurement industry to help further uh, measurement development? Because it would seem to me what you're doing eventually gets us to improve quality measures. Yeah, well, there's, yeah, we have, we, we've had conversations with organizations that are trying to create, like, things like pay for performance or, um, you know, uh, quality measures, like you're saying. The closest we've come to that is working with medical societies to help them create better guidelines, like we work with American Heart Association, American uh, Society of Chest Physicians, et cetera. And so what they're trying to do is improve the quality of their guidelines by using, you know, our platform. That's as close as we've come to being in that space. But I do agree it's somewhere we should be. I mean, if anybody is is judging a hospital or a doc physician group Anybody, any organization that's judging somebody by on, based on the quality of care, they should have a link, or they should be relying on a fully transparent, easy to understand uh, evidence resource. You know, what evidence are they using to judge them? So, if they're judging them on whether or not they provided adequate preventative care, well, what's the evidence that the preventative care should be provided, or that it's, it's a you know an appropriate preventive measure in that patient population, or if they're measuring. You know, whether or not patients, for example, got beta blockers after an acute MI, you know, they should be able to provide the evidence that beta blockers should be provided. They should be able to support and validate and prove that their their quality judgments and scoring system is valid and reliable. So you, with that answer, you somewhat answered my related or flip side of the coin question, and that is you talked about pay for performance. So that's uh, the question of driving value. So you would, the link here or the, the logical progression is if you're using um, uh, uh, treatments that have an evidence base, you would guess that or assume that there would be a correlation to an improved outcome achieved relative to a more efficient spending. So similarly, your work has implications uh, down that road as well. Uh, have you seen interest in taking the steps in that direction with your work? For 
for, you mean specifically for pay for performance? Yeah, pay for performance, uh, pay for value, you know, the various uh, names. We've, yeah, I mean, we've had, we've had those conversations. We're not really working with, you know, payers or government right now, but yeah, like you say, it's a logical next step. I mean, anybody who, who's creating or, or developing or running those programs, pay for performance quality measures, should be, you know, working with us to create, you know, access, um, to user-friendly evidence databases that validate their quality measures or their pay-for-performance programs. Because yeah. that's that's the biggest complaint is that, like, doctors and, and even patients say, wait, you know, what's the evidence that supports your program or your rules or your quality measures? Right, exactly. And I, I being in, in Southern California, you're in the perfect market because we know the state it's further down the road than anyone else relative to uh, capitated uh, payment plans or P for P, pay for value, however you want to note that. You, you did somewhat answer as well my going out question, and that is you probably know under the Affordable Care Act, uh, PCORI was created, uh, $10 billion, the Patient Centered Outcome Research Institute, and that's this is their job is to fund uh, programs that produce uh, evidence all by driving improved quality, more spending, efficiency. Um, have you looked at or had an interest, has Corey expressed an interest in your work? Or I'm hoping they would. Yeah, yeah. I know we've had conversations about that. Um, I would, I would say that the, the evidence that, like you were alluding to, you know, what's the evidence that any program actually produces better outcomes? I think you've covered that in the previous podcast on pay for performance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, being, I, I haven't seen all the evidence, but, you know, is there, it begs the question, is there evidence that any of these programs actually impact patients and improve clinical outcomes? I will say this, that we've done, over the last 10 years, we've done hundreds and hundreds of custom evidence projects for patients, uh, with, for patients and their doctors. And I'd say over 80% of those evidence projects we've done for patients have led to a change in management and have led to higher quality of care and lower costs. And we've we've probably saved the industry millions of dollars over the last 10 years doing evidence projects for patients. And it's one of the first times in my career as a doctor that I've seen a program actually improve quality of care and lower costs simultaneously, which, you know, is the whole mission of ACA, right? I mean... It's the holy grail, right? We're doing it now. Yeah, I mean, we're doing it now every day. We're doing it, but, you know... We need to get in front of, uh, you know, the administration and, and Tom Price and all them and explain to them how evidence might solve their entire healthcare um, dilemma. Yes, exactly. Uh, unsustainable spending. My last question, where do you see your organization going over the next few years? Just continue to do uh, these projects or how do you see this work growing? Yeah, I... I our promise land, our vision, you know, our, our dream is that, you know, um, everybody in healthcare is using a digital platform to, to aggregate the evidence, whether it's us or not. It, it doesn't have to be us, but, you know, I think we're the only company who's really doing this now. Assuming if we're the only company, then I hope, you know, on behalf of patients and doctors that everybody is using digital evidence technologies because it enables everybody to get access to the evidence in a, in a user-friendly format, it's transparent, you can change the parameters. And I think that will enable pharmaceutical companies to, you know, develop better drugs, it'll help medical societies develop better guidelines. 
It'll help, um, you know, physician groups create better guidelines. It'll help doctors make better recommendations, help patients make better informed decisions. So, you know, I, I just completely believe in the concept of evidence, um, transforming, reforming healthcare, leading to better care, higher quality and lower costs, and um, reforming our healthcare system and, and making a healthcare affordable for all without any compromise in quality. Sure, sure. Well, Todd, thank you uh, for your time. We're at our boundary point. I want to say good luck. I appreciate this uh, review. Uh, so best of luck. Thank you very much, and, and thank you for asking this great question and letting me talk about what we're doing. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.